All right, well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome out to Grace. My name is Josh. I'm one of our pastors here, and uh, very excited for this weekend. Uh, we're going to be finishing up this series on God Is. I'm so glad that you're here this weekend, too. Um, happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Um, just so glad that uh, we can celebrate you. You know, um, here at Grace, we just want you to know that um, we really do value you. You know, you're not, um, you're not the butt of the joke. Um, you're not just uh, like every sitcom dad. We don't view you that way. We don't view your home that way. Um, but we really do. We, we think that being um, a godly man is one of the most challenging things uh, to do in our world today. And uh, for those of you who are dads who are striving to do that, uh, we just want to celebrate you. We want to support you. And we want you to know uh, that what you do has so much value. Even though um, none of us are perfect dads, um, you know, we are modeling Christ in our homes. We're modeling his love and forgiveness. And uh, it's, it's a big uh, role when you, when you opt in to do that and, and you do that uh, in Jesus' name and to his glory. So um, I also know this weekend can be kind of challenging uh, maybe uh, if you've experienced loss or even a uh, hurt from your dad. And so maybe this isn't a fun weekend. And uh, I just would like to um, pray that, you know, God would meet you in that space because we can call God Father. He has he, he is called that and uh, he can begin to work and heal in those ways. So I would just like to pray for our dads and, and pray for us this weekend as we get started. Um, Father, uh, thank you that we can call you that, that you are um, the one who is good and who is perfect in all things. And um, thank you for our dads. I, I pray for them right now. It's, it's a heavy weight to carry. Um, and we, we all uh, know we do it imperfectly and we're afraid, but God, um, I pray that you would make much of our, of our efforts, that uh, as we spiritually lead our homes and uh, love our spouses and kids, um, man, would you just uh, go before us? Would you redeem um, our homes and our lives, God, because there's so much that can be seen um, and hurt uh, through us. So we, we just want people to uh, see Jesus. And I just pray that you would bolster our dads, give them courage, help them to um, act like the godly men you are calling them to be. And for those of us who uh, just need uh, your uh, love and presence in that fatherly way this week, and God, would you just meet us there? And would we trust you and know that you are good and that... Um, uh, you want to make us whole. You want us to, to know you in, the, in that way and to experience uh, your goodness as Father. Uh, thank you for being with us this weekend. I pray uh, that you go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're uh, in this series. We're actually wrapping up the series called God Is. So we've been uh, in it for about six weeks now. So if it's your first weekend, uh, it's still going to be fun. We're going to have uh, quite a journey today. Uh, but if you've uh, missed it, uh, missed one of the weeks, or want to catch up on the whole conversation, it's on YouTube, it's on the app, it's on our website. And I encourage you to do that because it's kind of been a, a linear thought. It's been uh, one part of the Bible that we've been looking at over and over again. And uh, what we've been saying throughout this series is that um, our lives are built from the heart up, or they're built from the soul up. And so what we mean by that is um, what we believe about God inside of us, what's going on at that soul level and how we view and understand God affects everything in our lives. Um, so much of, of our lives are defined and directed by what our understanding of God is, and even if we don't believe there's a God, like so much of that begins to affect our lives and how we live. And uh, even one author said uh, the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. And uh, we've also been saying too, uh, this has been really important just to set it up this way, that uh, in the Bible it says that uh, God knocks at the door and he invites us 
Um, so God, God isn't this God who uh, kicks the door down and says, you're going to be like this and I'm going to make you do that. He's very much um, in that passage in Revelation 3.20 saying, uh, it's an invitation. He wants to be known. He's knocking. And for those who respond to it, he answers. And, we, and he can be known. And I think that's the good news. I mean, that's, what's, that's why we have a whole series on this, is that God can be known. He wants to be known. And uh, the place we've been uh, camped out throughout this whole series is Exodus 34. Uh, verses six and seven. And uh, this is fascinating. This is actually the most quoted part of the Bible by the Bible. So the Bible quotes itself. And this is the most quoted part of the Bible by the Bible over 30 times, whether in part or in whole. Um, You see this language, this description of God's character show up again and again and again. So it's really important. And uh, it's it's God's clearest uh, explanation of himself, of what he's like and how we should understand interacting with him. So we're going to uh, finish up that conversation today and uh, look at that passage in Exodus 34 again. So it reads like this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so we've actually talked through all this. We've talked about how God has a personal name. It's Yahweh. He's not just some unknown deity called God. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. He's personal and wants to be known personally. He's compassionate and gracious. He's merciful. And he's slow to anger. He's patient. His disposition isn't that he starts angry, but he's patient. He's slow to anger. He maintains hased, this loyal love. And he is faithful. He's trustworthy. And he maintains that love or he protects that love to thousands. And he's forgiving. He forgives sin and human brokenness. And so uh, you can go back and, and check out all of those weeks. It's, it's been a big conversation. You can see how it kind of builds on each other. It's all in the same area here. And this is where we're going to go this weekend. Verse 7 says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Happy Father's Day. Um, (laughs) This is going to be a wild one. Um, Yeah, we're going to work through this last part. And um, I I just encourage you, we've been all throughout this series, you maybe even heard me uh, just use a few uh, Hebrew words. We've been talking a lot about the original language. We've been talking about how the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and the New Testament is written in Greek. And we have an English translation and you don't know Hebrew, you don't know Greek. And so uh, I encourage you, the best way to see what's going on when, when scholars translate the Bible is to read different translations of it. And you'll see some of these differences and some of these things point out. And uh, actually last week we looked at another translation of the Bible or just another translation of this verse um, in a different Bible translation. And it read this way in the ESV. Uh, the Lord, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there's a few things that are different. A few things you start to notice that's coming through in, in this version. And um, all, we'll talk about all that, but um, we'll refer kind of back to this one. I think this begins uh, to show more of what we want to see and, and helps us overcome some of those language hurdles that Uh, can really be difficult to want to engage. So last week we talked about sin and human brokenness and we talked about how God is forgiving. So we won't really dive deep into that. You can go back and get that uh, conversation if you want it. This weekend what we're really going to highlight is that God is just. 
he is just. And what we mean by that is that God is the one who defines good and evil. And only he can define that. He is perfectly just. And even we would take that all the way down, you know, him defining good and evil, that uh, circumstantially he is the one who can make things right. He can restore. That God is just. And so, uh, yeah, it, um, for me, having to uh, do this week, especially uh, on this weekend, uh, I can kind of feel like I'm driving down a really steep mountain in West Virginia, and if I go too fast, I'm going to like go off the side of a cliff. So I'm going to try to like take us smooth around some of these curves and not make us sick or drive off the road. Um, but uh, I would just encourage you to, to take a deep breath. I'm not going to, um, I'm not here to like, you know, uh, let you have it this weekend. I think that actually... Um, often we get to these parts of the Bible that maybe we feel like we want to pick and choose and it's like, I liked all the words up to this point, um, but now it's starting to feel uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And uh, I would just encourage you, when you get to those parts in the Bible, if you really want to know who God is, you need to lean into them. You, you need to uh, attempt and seek to understand them better because we want to know who God is. Not, you know, make him in, into who we think he is or what we want him to be, but I think when you begin to really genuinely uh, seek to know him and understand him for who he says he is, you actually begin to see the beauty and goodness of his character. And it may even be better than you originally uh, wanted him to be. And so uh, let's uh, dive into that together and... Uh, We'll walk through as much of this as we can uh, this weekend. So let's just talk about what Exodus 34-7 means, uh, because it's strange. And uh, one of the first things that I think it, it needs to draw out for us is that our decisions have an ongoing effect into future generations. And uh, I uh, would like to believe that my decisions really only affect me, um, but I have kids in my house. And so uh, I get to watch it play out through these three little munchkins uh, every day and how they pick up and pattern my behavior and even how just uh, things indirectly affect them. And uh, there's all sorts of other people in our lives too, right? Um, there, there's, our, you know, your church family. There's um, all sorts of people maybe you work with, your extended family, if you have a spouse and kids. Um, all of a sudden, it's really hard to escape the fact that um, our choices and our decisions uh, affect more people than just us. You'd have to live a very isolated life for that uh, to happen. But what, what we're seeing here is um, a few things happening in this passage that I think point that out. One is this whole third and fourth thing, right? It's like the kids uh, and those kids' kids all the way down to the third and fourth. And in that translation we looked at, it said the third and fourth generation. So actually, that's what we think is going on here, right? We're talking about kids and, and, and the next generation. And then it just says to the third and fourth. And what we're seeing with this third and fourth language in, in the Hebrew Bible and in the Old Testament is often it's just showing that ongoing effect. It's saying, and so on, and so on, and so on. And that's, that's how this verse is ending here, to the third and fourth generation that uh, God begins to see this play out. He's, he's seeing humanity's brokenness in particular uh, play out over and over again and have future and forward impact. And um, remember, one of the other differences in that translation, I pointed this out last week, but uh, some of the translations say that he punishes. But actually what that word means is that he um, visits or he numbers or uh, overseas, like God is aware. 
he's aware, he doesn't, he doesn't miss it, and those consequences are allowed to play out and they have um, a future impact. I mean, this is why we see this happen in families all the time, right? Like, like there's cycles, there's patterns, whether you see them or not or whether you want to continue them or not. It's amazing, right, how um, you want things to be different, but in some way or another, these patterns and these cycles sweep up into your generation, into your life uh, in one way or another, maybe not in the same way, but it's hard to escape them, right? Like father like son, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh, this is very much just how it naturally is. And I think God's telling us that just simply to warn us. I don't think he, we're supposed to read this and see this vindictive. Um, he's ready to, to come against us, but he's saying this is the way it goes. This is what happens when humans make other humans. <laughs> Generations go forward and they're still broken and there's patterns and there's cycles. And uh, it's obvious to see that. I mean, the Bible would even say in other parts of it, if, if we're tempted to think that um, what this is saying is that if your great-grandma cheated on her taxes, then God's going to hold that against you too. Um, other parts of the Bible actually, for some reason, address this specifically. Ezekiel 18 is one of those places where it talks about this misconception. Like, are people just held accountable for everything that's gone wrong before them? And it says no. That God actually um, holds each person and generation accountable um, to their own merits. And uh, he even says that uh, the righteous and the wicked could change course in, in their lifetimes. And so uh, this, this happens many times in the Bible where this specific thing is addressed, and that's not what it's saying. The Bible itself says this is not what it's saying. Um, so we have to make sure we avoid that. We don't drive off the cliff there, um, and we, we avoid that turn. But there is a way um, to say that the sins of parents and, and generations before affects those, those negative consequences have an effect on their kids and those future generations, but that's different than saying that um, they're held accountable or punished for, for those sins in kind of the way we would think about it. The second thing that I, I think we're supposed to pull out of this is that God watches over the lives of each person in every generation. He watches over the lives. It's like every person throughout all of history has 24-7 Video surveillance, <laughs> lie detector surveillance. He knows every thought, motive, action, attitude, deed. And that scares me so much <laughs> that God could be that involved in humanity, that he, he could even have the capacity and what we call the sovereignty to understand humanity at that level. Um, I mean, I think we all long to truly be known, but this is terrifying. <laughs> like, there's just no way around that. You can't translate your way out of it. This is, this is really daunting because at least what I think of is if uh, someone had all that information about me, uh, what might that person do with it? What might my high school friends do with it? <laughs> if they had all that information about me, how quickly would that video footage go on YouTube? And what we have to remember here is that God is the one with that information. And his motive is not to uh, catch us in every sin. And in every moment, he catches that to zap us and, and make us feel it, right? He's maintaining love. He is forgiving. Right? This is all within the context of his character. But actually, um, the reason I point this out is because God has a desire to be known in every generation. Like, uh, He's not just interested in talking about who he is back here, but the fact that he would continue to be in, in, involved in the lives of 
every generation up to us and forward. Like, it, it's crazy to think about that, that actually his heart in showing this isn't to show us that he's out to get us, but to show us he wants us to experience his character. You find this in another part of, of the Old Testament. Write down Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. This is a really famous part of the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. And the Jewish people would repeat it every day. And you maybe know it as the greatest commandment. It says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And the things that he commands us, are, it says, are supposed to be on our hearts. And then we're supposed to impress them onto our children, it says in verse 6, I think. And actually, we're, every time we come in and out of our homes, every time we're eating meals and walking along the way and putting them down the bed and waking them up and traveling in and out of the city, it says, we're supposed to teach them who God is. We're supposed to teach them what a love for God is. So that this verse is all played out within God's desire to be known and to be loved because he loves us. And there's that response of, of worship. The other reason I point uh, this out, that he watches over the lives of each person, every generation, is that um, he knows what is true and he knows what is false about our lives. And um, this is really helpful, especially when there's um, someone who you can't seem to, to figure out, you know, you can't seem to uh, see the real them, especially when um, there's, there's something going on that is false or harmful or um, really moving away from God's heart. It's, it's really important in that moment that if we've experienced injustice, if something's going down and no one's calling it wrong, if no one's exposing that as sin, if no one's doing justice, that we know that that doesn't escape God. Like he sees and he knows and he will call things right and he will call things wrong. Um, it's really important, right? Like when, when something's wrong, we, need, we want it to be seen, we want it to be fixed. There was a, a few years ago, I started getting these charges on my credit card and they were up in Cleveland. I like never go to Cleveland, um, but here is like this dog grooming place and the McDonald's and for Lowe's and random stuff. It's like, I wouldn't even know what to buy at Lowe's. Um, and so all these charges are getting on my credit card and I call Discover and I'm like, uh, this, is, this isn't good. I have no idea what's happening. I'm getting these charges. And they say, do you have the card with you? And I pull it out of my wallet. I'm like, it's right here. I've got the card. Like someone's, you know, being twisted and evil and trying to do me harm. They're stealing my identity. They go, well, hold on a second. Like you got the card. Like, I don't know how they're using it. And they're like, well, are you sure it's your card? I'm like, I have it in my hand right now. And they're like, well, check the back of it. And I flip it over and it says, Brian. Um, <laughs> and uh, I work with a Brian. And we had gone to lunch that week and apparently got the checks mixed up. And I was going to Circle K and wondering why my zip code didn't work and trying to charge gas. And he was going to Lowe's and having a field day. And uh, uh, we got it all sorted out. And he, um, I was like, I want you to make this guy pay. No, I was like, well, I'll take care of it. Like, you know, uh, don't sound the alarms. And uh, we made sure to get those transactions uh, fixed. And, uh, but if, if it, that would have been real, right? Can you imagine? Like, we want that to stop. Like, we cannot stand Injustice. We, we don't want those wrongs to continue. We want them to be exposed. We want them to be righted. But it doesn't always work that way. And, and I, I, we don't have time to go, I can't like talk about uh, in, injustice today. Like it's, 
There's so much we could go to, but, but this is relevant. Like us continuing to see God as just speaks to that conversation. It has to be a conversation for another day. Um, but for now, we'll just say that God doesn't get confused. He doesn't get duped. God, God sees things as they are, and he will reconcile our lives for what they truly are. Because he's just. What he calls good is good, and what he calls wrong is wrong. And he can restore, and he will judge. And so uh, that's, that's what I feel like we need to draw out of this, what it means. That's uh, a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, even still, I mean, it's great that we can explain it, but it's still a little strange. It feels... Uh, maybe uncomfortable for me because it feels like God's inspecting. <laughs> like he's al- always watching. And uh, that intimidates me. But I think the reason it becomes really intimidating or really uncomfortable is because we start to analyze God's justice and we remove it from the context of where we just got it from. We remove it from the context of the rest of his character. That he's not just just. This isn't the only thing about God. that We we don't need to spend a nine-week series on God's justice, but actually it's very good that we're covering this within his compassion, his grace, his patience, that he's slow to anger, his faithfulness, his forgiveness, his love. And it feels to me a little bit like uh, we're going to really miss the picture if all we do is dial into God's justice and just talk about what he hates and what he's going to do about it. Like, all of a sudden, that's not what we're going to do today. It feels a little bit like uh, if you were to see someone walking around your neighborhood and they had a mask on and were carrying around a fake knife and they came up and knocked on your door, unless it was Halloween. (laughs) Then all of a sudden you're like, this is totally okay and totally normal. I might give them candy. But if that's happening any other day of the week, like something is up and it's strange. When you take something out of its context, all of a sudden that, that meaning can get totally lost. And so we want to push this idea of God's justice back into its context, into the full picture of his character. And so I would say that we cannot understand God's justice apart from his mercy. We're not going to come to an accurate understanding of who God is if we just dial into that and dissect it apart from the rest of his character. This happens uh, all the time though, right? Like, um, we kind of want answers for things. We start to, to see what's broken. We want to know what God's going to do about it. Or what's someone going to do about it? You ever heard of compassion fatigue? Compassion fatigue. Um, psychologists actually call this secondary trauma. It's not stuff that happens to you directly, but it's all the stuff that you see happening to everyone else. And so we all actually, I I think, experienced this. Maybe you didn't know it was called that, but like when you're watching the news and reading through social media and you're hearing what's happening over there, like you would have never heard that if someone wouldn't have told you. And all of a sudden, it's not happening to you directly. It may not even be in your part of the world or with people you cross paths with. But this thing called compassion fatigue is exhausting to empathize and understand the brokenness and what's actually going on in the world. We get fatigued by it. We get worn out by it. We, we can't really handle it because there's really not much we can do. But God, he doesn't get fatigued. Somehow he's still involved and he sees everything you see and a million times more. And somehow we're supposed to understand that he is still just and he's also merciful 
Somehow, we're supposed to understand God's character is unchanging, and it's perfect, and it's cohesive, and it's whole. And God sees all this, and his character is the same. I think that what we could say about God's justice and his mercy, maybe how those play together, is that he, those who do evil will be held accountable, but the helpless will also be rescued. Evil will be held accountable, but the helpless, the needy, the marginalized, the oppressed, they'll also be rescued. You actually, you can see this in the Psalms. You start to, actually in these Psalms specifically, we didn't have time to go to them today, but write them down later and, and maybe journal on this week or just read them in the morning. Um, you'll find that Exodus 34, that he's um, compassionate and grace, gracious and loving and faithful, you'll see it repeated in a lot of these Psalms. And you'll also see that he's just. And what you'll see is when the people who are writing these poems, these psalms, they're actually asking for God's justice. They want it. They're banking on it. They're banking on all of his character because they're in need. Like no one sees them. No one's doing what's right. Nobody has their back. They're not safe. And so they they are actually calling out to a God they know is just and saying, how long? Like, will you do something about it? This is who you are, and this is what we need. So in the Bible, like people who knew God's character, they they called out, they longed for God's justice to rescue them. And they did that because something was going on, something that they could not escape, harm or oppression. And ultimately, we know that God will judge. He will make all things new. Uh, There is, it talks about a day where the Lord will judge all things. But for now, we experience his patience. And actually, 2 Peter 3.9, it says that we experience his patience so that it might lead us to repentance. So somehow God is working this out, his justice and his mercy. We long for it now. We know one day it's coming, but he's also these other things too. And somehow he perfectly weaves them together. And so if we need God's justice, it's a good thing, right? If we're on the receiving end of being one of those... um, ones who's making harm and uh, moving against his design and and breaking his world further. Uh, We're not very interested in God's justice at that point, but if we're the one in need, all of a sudden it's this protective good. He will do what he says he will do. And so maybe the good news, a way to like see it is this way, that God won't stop until we are completely restored. When he's talking about how he will not leave the guilty unpunished and how for every generation forward, he's gonna continue to be involved. What God's saying is that he is relentless. He will continue to pursue his people, his creation. He is not okay with the way things are. And every time we see the, the world broken and, and the evil, evil of the world, we and we say it's not supposed to be this way and will someone do something about it, we're supposed to bring that to God. And, and I, I've felt this before. I felt like, God, like, do you see what's going on? Like, do you understand? Do you, do you see what I'm going through? Like, I, I feel like my life's out of control, God. Like, all this stuff, all this stuff I'm supposed to have figured out and all of, all of it's breaking at the same time. Do you see me? Do you understand me? But I think God is more powerful and present than we like to accept. I think he would say, well, do you see me? Do you understand who I am? 
It actually says that God is jealous. It's a good kind of jealous. It's, it's a passion. He's jealous for his people. He's saying, I'm not okay with this. I want to make all things new. I am making all things new. See me at work. See where I draw the line. See how I involve myself. See how I act. See my heart. He's not willing to settle for mediocrity. He, he's not saying sin's no big deal. He wants nothing less than total restoration of our lives and of this world. There's actually a place that uh, I want to take us today. It's uh, in John 9. I want to take us to the life of Jesus. I want to show you a moment where I feel like we get to see God's justice and all these terms that we're talking about entering in, into a place of injustice, a place where his mercy um, is, is balanced and shown equally in part in perfection. And so it's in John 9. You can open that up uh, in the app or um, if you have a Bible app. There's also some Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you and you can turn to page 869. We're gonna read the whole chapter, so I need you to turn there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to write your name in that one and take it home with you. Uh, but we're going to walk through this moment with Jesus and uh, how we see uh, justice and mercy playing out at the same time. And so starting in verse 1, we're going to go through the whole thing and, and stop along the way. But it says, as Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Someone's been reading Exodus 34-7 wrong, <laughs> right? This is like, for some reason, a, a thought project that people had. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when we can do no work, when no one can work, and while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So basically what Jesus is saying here in his own little rabbi way is that something big is about to happen, and it's going to be more than just a miracle. And I want you, I want you to pay attention to it as we get through it and to the end of it. And so in verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, and he made some mud with the saliva and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So a miracle happens. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was, and others said, no, he really only looks like him. But he himself said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. And I don't know, he said. So they brought to the Pharisees, these religious leaders, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. This is going to frustrate him. This is no good. Um, therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned to the blind man, and uh, they asked him, what have, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. This is interesting. This is what happens next. 
They still did not believe that he had been blind or had rece- and had received a sight until they sent for the man's parents. Here come mom and dad. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? And how is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this <laughs> because they were afraid. Awesome parents. They were afraid of Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that was why his parents said, ask, he is of age, ask him. And so a second time they summoned the man who had been born, bl- born blind. Give glory to God, tell us the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And so he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. What, do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) And they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses and we know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And so the, the blind man answered, now that is remarkable, you religious leaders. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This is fascinating. Here's a man, all he knows is he was blind and now he can see. He didn't do anything wrong. And he's completely abandoned. No one in the community sticking up for him. His own parents are like, ask him, he's of age. Like, we don't want to have anything to do with this. He's clearly a beggar. And and the religious leaders are so fixed on doing justice in their mind. Oh, Jesus did a miracle on the Sabbath. It shouldn't have been on this day. They They can't even see that. He's like, do you... He's like, I'm not even educated. Like, I was a blind man for my entire life. Like, can't you see? Like, who else could do something like this? Why would, why would God allow something like this to happen if it wasn't from him? And they're not willing to see it. See, this, this man experienced injustice his entire life. He was a blind, marginalized beggar who his parents didn't even want to own. Nobody advocated for his cause. Like the only reason his life changed, well, it's because of what happens at the end, right? It says in verse 35 that Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when they found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, here's here's something about God's judgment. For judgment, I have come into this world. What's Jesus' judgment like? So that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Fascinating. 
And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. This is interesting. Jesus is defining what his justice looks like. See, there are people who claim to see. There are people who in God's name claim to see, and this is what's right. And Jesus' warning, he's saying, you may think you can see, but you're actually blind, and you're guilty. And you do not see this compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just God, and you're simply just doing your own thing. You are, you are not interacting with who God really is, and you're not following after his heart. And then there are these people who are blind and broken and probably have no business being around Jesus. And Jesus says, those people, those people who can do nothing about it, I want to help them see. I want to help them see. That's what it means to do justice, to be merciful, these things coming together. This man who is marginalized that no one would advocate for, that everyone pushed aside, that, no, that only Jesus would help. I think what we can take away is this, that if we can't see who God is, Jesus is the one who can open our eyes. Jesus is God with skin on. He, he, he was a real person who, who walked around and embodied this forgiving, healing, transforming, just, compassionate, merciful expression of God's real, true character. See, that's what we actually need is we need to see God. We need to actually have, understand who he is and have a real experience of him for ourselves. And when we see God, it changes everything about our lives from the heart up. Everyone may have abandoned this man, but not Jesus. See, actually, as I was reading John 9, I, I really thought about my dad. And I even called him up and we talk, talked about it for a little bit. And I was like, Dad, I feel like this is your story. And he was the first Christian in his home. At around the age uh, 12 or 13, my dad, uh, he said in seventh grade, he spent a summer with his great-grandma. Sounds like a, a great summer, right? Uh, she was, you know, they didn't want her living alone that summer, and so he stayed with her for the summer. Well, she went to church every week, and this was my dad's first exposure to Jesus, church experience. And that summer, he saw Jesus. He saw who he was. And uh, he knew he, he wanted something different, that, that Jesus had something different to offer him, even as a seventh grader. And uh, my dad grew up, he went to college. He was one of the few, uh, I don't think any, anyone else in his family went to college. He was in many ways a cycle breaker for all sorts of reasons, but he came back from college and uh, no one in his home modeled the life of Jesus. None of his friends did. Um, he was just alone, he's totally alone. And he, he tells me about driving around his hometown, West and West Virginia, and how he's just praying and saying, God, like, I know you want something different for me. Like, Jesus, show me what it is that you want. He's completely helpless. Like, God changed his life as a seventh grader, and now here he is, a young adult, trying to figure out what to do with himself. 
And uh, as he tells the story, around that time he met my mom. And my mom did come uh, from a home of Christians. And she was a part of a church family. And my dad got grafted into that. And he began to learn what it meant to give his life to Jesus. It's crazy. Like Jesus caused my dad to see. First generation. And it doesn't matter if I tell you specifically what my dad came from or what he did about it. What the point of that story is, is that our family's origin, the the beginning point of our family's spiritual story is that Jesus changed my dad's life. Jesus changed my dad's life. I didn't, he wasn't a perfect dad. He wasn't an expert at everything. But what was true about my dad and is true about my dad is that he increasingly gave more and more of himself away for Jesus. That was what I watched growing up. Not perfection, not having it all together spiritually. I watched him give more and more of his life away for Jesus. And I still get to watch that. And I'm impacted by that. And his grandkids are impacted by that. And and others are too. And so I I think there's a warning here for us. And and, uh, I think that the warning is that there is a danger in every generation. There's a danger in our, our generation in this time right now. And it's the same danger that, that every generation before us has had to, to reconcile with. And it's that we will forget who God is. We'll forget who God is. Here God is, he's revealed himself. He's revealed clearly who he is. It's repeated over and over again. And actually, go to Judges 2.10. Two generations after Moses, it says a whole generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or what he had done. A whole generation. It would be so easy for us to forget who God is. And if that's the case, and this may be a weird way to end a a sermon on God's justice, um, but we should say that for real faith to thrive, each generation must become the first generation. Each generation must become the first generation. That, That what is needed is a real, tangible experience of, of God's character. That as we've gone through this God is serious, this, this isn't just a set of ideas or facts about God. This isn't just what someone else experienced about him. This, this is what God wants you to experience about him. There's, there's no secondhand versions of faith. God doesn't have grandkids, he has kids. <laughs> and so it's our job to personally respond in faith to him to have this experience of his grace and compassion and his patience and his faithfulness and his love and his forgiveness and his justness. And so dads, if you want to be people who make the character of God known to your kids and to future generations, I would encourage you to start here. To make your faith real for the most important thing about your life to be a passionate Jesus follower. I mean, that's the whole point of this. The reason it matters to us right now that we respond and we ourselves have this kind of knowledge and experience of who God is, mostly, namely through the person of Jesus, is so that his character might be put on display for the next generation. We go first. We become the lead learners in our family, dads. 
We, we seek him. We stumble our way into spiritual leadership. We don't do it perfectly. And so that's where I'd close us out today is that the point of this series is that you would see and experience God for yourself and Jesus is the one who can meet us there. He, he, he is so close to us that Jesus can become real to you, he can free you, he can restore you. And the more time you spend reading about him, hearing about him, singing about him, talking with him, you'll begin to experience that personalness, that compassion, that grace, his patience, his forgiveness, his justice. You'll be like those who, who write songs and poems and, and have real tangible interactions with God. And so I, I wanna invite the band out and I wanna pray for us this weekend as we close this out. Father, thank you um, for meeting us in this time. It's, it's a lot to unpack and it's uh, overwhelming for me too to, to, to tie a ribbon up on this. But there are, there are those of us here who we feel very distant from you, God. We feel that we've had that secondhand experience or that we just long for more of you and we don't know how to get it. And we feel like a blind man. We feel helpless and like we can't get this on our own, God. And so would you just help us to see who Jesus is? Would you help us to experience the full portrait of your character? We need all of you, God. Help us not to be afraid of knowing you. Help us not to feel silly for asking that we could see you, that we might hear you, that we might have a daily personal interaction and experience of, of all these things that are true about you. Um, just pray for each of us, God. Meet us where we're at and help um, our faith to become real. And may your character just saturate through our church and in this generation. And may we, may we be people who model and embody who you are faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen.